0: welcome to control the controllables my name is john mcgahan from max tennis academy in ireland and i'm here with my co-host dan kiernan
1: from soto tennis in spain together we have created a podcast bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together we hope you enjoy our next episode
0: A big welcome to episode 45 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Michael Joyce. Michael made his name as as an ATP tennis player, uh, 64 in the world, made fourth round of Wimbledon, had a couple of epic matches with Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi on the biggest stage. And then he turned his hand to coaching where he coached Maria Sharapova for seven years um, whilst coaching Maria, uh, they they won three Grand Slams together. He um, we went through a lot from the, the very beginning of her career uh, before moving on to Azarenka. He's then coached Bouchard and he's currently Timia Babosh's coach who has won the last couple of doubles Grand Slams. Um, I know Michael personally. I was fortunate enough to play a little bit of doubles with him Back in the days, he was coming towards the end of his career. Um, he's, a, he's a lovely guy, but he's, he's also he's a proper tennis guy. He's very, very open. Um, and I was completely fascinated having the conversation with him that you're, you're about to listen to. Uh, he opens up a lot, goes into details on how contracts are done with players. Uh, we hear about uh, Maria Sharapova and her training habits um we hear about you know his thoughts thoughts with where the game's going um and he really has been he's been on the wta2 at the very top for for the last 15 years or so now um i know that you're gonna love it Uh, the edit was very easy Uh, i think i edited out one 10 second clip where we had a bit of a wi-fi issue and the rest is just a full-flown conversation um which I thoroughly enjoyed having, and I hope you enjoy listening to. Um, so over to Michael Joyce. So Michael Joyce, a big welcome to Control the Controllables.
1: Hey, Daniel, how are you doing?
0: Yeah, good. It's, uh, it's nice to see you. Uh, uh, every, every couple of years, I've got to get my little bit of Michael Joyce. You know.
1: <laughs> that's right. Tournaments. Yeah, that's right. When was the first time I saw you in Lake Charles, Louisiana, I think? It was.
0: It a Long time ago. You kicked my ass on the on the singles court in the final. I think we might have won a doubles title together. Yeah,
1: that's right. I think we played doubles there. I just remember it hot, hot like hell. <laughs> really, really.
0: I, I somehow managed to get a few games in the first set, but I think you killed me off in the in the. In the <laughs> and, and, and actually, I won the mixed doubles that week with my with my wife. Actually, we were we were just. Kind of, that's right. I remember
1: you mentioned that. I, I, yeah, that's right. Cause she went. Did she go to LSU as well?
0: So she was. She was a Magna State girl, actually. So she was. Okay. Lake,
1: so she was actually.
0: She was in Lake Charles. We met at Wimbledon, at the, the sub okay. four, and we would obviously kind of kept in touch and i thought i'd make my move by you know inviting me to be a mixed doubles partner and luckily, yeah it's great you didn't enter the mixed doubles that year well
1: luckily yeah lucky you guys won it you, you know right. you might not uh, might not have worked out so well <laughs>
0: you took the club the club pro down a guy called ronnie i don't know if you remember him but it was... i
1: remember i remember him now i do actually the
0: club weren't, the club weren't happy um but yeah um, and you made me look good in the doubles so it all it all worked out well, but just for the listeners listening in, Michael Joyce um, very much made his name as a as a player, um, ranked as high as 64 in the world. Um, for the Brits that are that are listening in, you know, he's a fourth round Wimbledon player. Um, had a couple of epic matches, or certainly an epic match with Pete Sampras at Aussie Open one year, which I seem to remember. And then it's gone into the coaching world, where he's worked with names such as Azarenka, Conta, Bouchard. Um, now working with Timmy Babos, and and obviously very well known for seven years with, with Maria Sharapova as well. So, an amazing guest to have, Michael. And, uh, yeah. and there's lots of things I'd love to love to jump into and sure rabbit holes and push your buttons a little bit and see what we can absolutely.
1: Get um, well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great, but I, I have to start with the the world the current the current world, and I guess what what it means for as a traveling coach you know where where do you stand? where are you at and what what happened? yeah obviously canceled, yeah
1: yeah it's it's tough i actually I was with Tamea in Indian wells yeah. um, she was playing qualifying there I um, uh, started the year good in Australia. Uh, she won the doubles in Australia, and, and we, we had started to hear a few things about, you know, the virus and stuff in January, but, you know, you kind of think oh, it's, not, it's only in China, whatever. So each week, you'd start to hear a little bit more, a little bit more, and then when we finally got to Indian Wells, um, we were practicing, getting ready, getting ready for the tournament. She was going to play qualifying the next day, and everybody was acting like everything was normal. And uh, we were waiting for the schedule to come out, and it never came out. And about an hour or two later, we heard they canceled the tournament. So, obviously, it was a big shock for everyone because um, uh, nobody's seen something like that before. But uh, so we, uh, we went to dinner. Next day, we decided to, Tamea was going to go back to Hungary. And I came back to Miami because we were thinking possibly uh, the Miami tournament might happen. You know, at the time, we didn't realize how big it was going to be. But we also had a feeling if they canceled something like that, there's a good chance that they could cancel more. Uh, since then, obviously, everything's been shut down. So I actually, the first couple of weeks in Florida, I kind of took it easy. Um, I, I have a four-year-old daughter and my wife, so I kind of spent a little time just waiting around. And then it was tough because then they shut everything. Obviously, the courts get shut down. Uh, I live right near this Everett Academy. Um, they closed that down. So after a couple of weeks, you couldn't even get on like a public court to even you know give a private lesson or anything. So the first couple of months were pretty tough because basically it was nothing going on. Now uh, the last couple of months, I've been able to work with some juniors and a few players that are going to college, and I'm kind of going back to my old days of spending six, seven hours on the court. (laughs) And even if I don't want to, I there's a lot of people around. They know I'm kind of giving lessons and staying home until the tour starts. So that's kind of been what I've been doing lately.
0: Absolutely. And and what's what's the communication been like? I guess you're you're finding these things out pretty last minute. It seems with what's yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean the think hard part in the US things I think are a lot worse than other parts of the world. I think um it, I, you know people in the US kind of I actually was in I give you an example. I was in Naples, Florida when they like opened up so all the beaches everything were closed and then like the day they opened everything back up there was like a 100,000 people on the beach. On. Um I'll give you, I I went to a junior tournament this weekend. So there was uh, a big junior tournament in in Delray Beach. And like, it was one of the first USTA tournaments. And it was interesting because like, I got yelled at because I didn't have my mask on. I was sitting there watching this girl I'm working with. And there was literally nobody within 50 feet of me. And the guy yelled at me because I didn't have my mask on. And then literally, like, I drove down Delray Beach. Uh, like, it was at Delray Beach Tennis Center where they played a tournament. Uh, after the match, I drove a quarter of a mile away, and there was, like, 200 people on the road, like, drinking and no mask, at, 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 like, at restaurants and bars. So it, I, don't think that, I don't think the U.S. has done a good job of, like, containing, um, you know, the virus. And then, obviously, they shut down. But then when they opened up, everybody acted like everything was normal. Yeah. So in some ways some ways I feel like it might even be like worse than it was before, which (laughs) brings back to the point of like, you know, us open and then they're going to have the Cincinnati. It's, it's hard for me to, I won't believe that they're going to have it until I'm actually there sitting there because I just feel like there's too many unknowns and too many things are happening. Um, I know Tamea and some of her friends don't feel that comfortable about coming to us. Um, Everybody wants to play, everybody wants to get back to work, obviously, but coming to the U.S., especially from other countries, I just, Kyrgios has been a big, uh, you know, spoken, I just, it's hard for me to believe they'll have the U.S. Open and 30, 40% of the players probably won't be there, but, so we'll see.
0: Yeah, because what, I guess what happens, I actually spoke to Noah Rubin as well last week. Yeah. Noah's in New York already, and and, and we were talking about how it actually could become just U.S. players. It, could,
1: could. it technically could. It technically could. You know, and the thing what everybody forgets, too, is the, U- the U.S. Op- the reason they're even talking about the U.S. Open is because they didn't, they didn't have insurance like Wimbledon. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a money thing for USTA. You know, they, it's, I guarantee you if they had pandemic insurance like Wimbledon had, which is surprising Wimbledon even had it, but uh, if we won't even be talking about the U S open and most of the players don't really want to go. And to be honest, as a coach, I'm, I don't, I'm not really looking forward to going to U S open and watching my player play in Ash stadium with five people watching. And, you know, I, everybody forgets like that's part of like a huge part of the game is the crowd. The yeah. um, obviously the, 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 tournament itself, uh, seeing friends and being able to see family and be able to go to Manhattan. I mean, all these things that come along with a grand slam, yeah. isn't just the matches and it's a lot of players aren't looking forward to that. I mean, the only thing really USTA has going for them is the prize money yeah. um, where, you know, a lot of players would probably go because of the prize money. But besides that, um, I just can't. And then with French open starting a couple weeks after, uh, why would somebody from Europe really want to risk coming into the U S when they could play the French open two, three weeks later? So I, we'll see. I I'm pretty, uh, bullish on them not having it but they. I keep reading everything I keep reading stuff every day you know like oh they picked a new hotel this that whatever so we'll see but,
0: but where, where does it end that's my that's my yeah. I mean I'm not I'm not working at the, at the level of tournaments that you are but with my players I'm looking at challenger events I'm looking sure. at future events I'm looking and <laughs> until until and I, and I said this. I remember I did something at the start of this lockdown. And I, and I said to someone, I don't see there being any tournaments in 2020. I, ca- I can't
1: see That's it. exactly what I said. That's exactly what I said. I can't because see Because, like, <clears throat> yep. I, I totally agree. Actually, like, uh, two girls that I've been working with here that are, like, really good. Uh, one's going to University of South Carolina next year, a scholarship. Another one is uh, 17. Like, they are all pumped up because they were going to play nationals. Uh, which is hard courts they call national hard courts but it's like Kalamazoo for the boys and nationals for the girls and they just canceled that last week and they're like super bummed you know and but it is what it is it's you know and and I feel almost like by dragging it along it's like kind of like keeping people's hopes up I just read actually right before I started talking with you this lady has good information she just said they canceled all the tournaments in China for the second half of the year which is obviously the women's championships are there, big tournaments. So like you said, we're, I, I almost feel like it'd be better just to like, like uh, do a lot of the team. T- I think the team tennis has been working pretty good. Um, like Jessie, the gr- this girl I coached before, Pabula, she's playing there. And they're like in a bubble there. And, and the, there's some tennis on TV and they're, they're having a good time and competing. I feel like they can do a lot of that within the world because the hardest part is the travel the international travel i don't tennis itself i'm not too too concerned about getting the virus on a tennis ball but <laughs> the, the the travel is the biggest the obstacle so you could have a lot of these team tennis and stuff and then just start fresh next year hopefully that that to me would make the most sense
0: but well, that's my point are we not going to then get the january 2021 and yeah everyone want to travel to australia does australia want to have us in do you know that?
1: yeah exactly and
0: this is i guess it, it it feels as if maybe now is the time to just try something new do some new things yeah the team tennis i know they're doing a battle of the brits in britain
1: and yeah
0: in spain they've just had you know the big team event as well and sure and yeah, maybe it maybe it is a time to trial some of those things as well. I mean, we, we could sure. talk for hours on that, and there's absolutely I don't want to waste my time with you on that. But it, it is it is a real it is a real issue. I hope that things yes. get resolved, obviously for everyone in the world of tennis. But yeah. also, also we need to remember about the bigger picture on that as well. Um, absolutely. And on that, mate, obviously you've been you've been around the game now for many years at a very high level. Have yeah. you had any chance to reflect on, I guess, the greater picture of tennis, of yes, what like, <laughs> that goes and you know those sort of things? Anything that you could share with us on your reflections on that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I look back. It's it's interesting because uh, you know I'm 47 years old now, and and I obviously played all through the juniors, and and um, then I played professionally for a long time, and 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 then coaching. And you know the game. I've seen a lot of changes in the game. Uh, obviously, as I was playing, there was a lot of changes with the equipment, uh, the strings, the rackets. You know, changed um, uh, strokes changed. Obviously, you had guys, Agassi. Kind of, I feel guys like Agassi changed the game a little bit, and and now you have these guys like Nadal and Federer, you know, and and um, and so forth. So. You know, it's it's the games changed a lot because of the equipment and athlete, athletes and certain things, but it's still really the heart of it's still the same. Yeah, you, you know, it's kind of the same. I, I feel like there's a lot more, uh so, you know, social media, yeah. and there's a lot more uh, players uh, feel pressures from different things. um So, like back when we when we were playing, if I played a tournament somewhere in China and I choke the match it wasn't all over the internet and you couldn't watch the match <laughs> i remember my parents had to like look in the paper to see if i won and lost and and then little by little then you had some of the computers you could watch the live scoring that was big but you know i i feel like the uh the, the world is so much more connected now that it, it adds a lot of pressure um to the players and i think that's why you see a lot of the results it, it women it, it it's actually really incredible what the the top 3 guys uh, have been able to do, um, especially when you look at the women's game and how many um, different winners, Grand Slam winners, there's been and, and nobody's really dominating the game um, on, from the women's side like they are in the men. So, you know, those, th- those are the things I look at as d- different, but the heart of the game is pretty much the same, like, since I was a kid.
0: Yeah, but if we if – we, just to pick up on what you said there about the pressure, the players feel – do you, do you think that the pressures become stronger on the coaches as well because of the demand? Sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I think I think in general everything you do is is under a microscope a lot more than it was before. I mean, um even with the women the on-court coaching uh I think it's uh it's a part of the game that that the women have they don't have a grand slams, but you, you know, on, in the WTA tournaments, like you'll go on the court, you'll say something, every player coach relationship is different. Um, The way I would talk to maybe one player would be different than another one. Um, What you say, you know, it's obviously everybody can see it. It can can be all over the internet. It can be, (laughs) uh, I remember when I was coaching Joe Conta, for instance, like she gets a lot of, um, you know, opinions and press in and, and Britain is, is obviously, uh, you know, it's, you know, she, the questions and the, the, the what people say and uh, about her and good things and bad. It's, it, it just, it, that adds a lot of pressure. There's no doubt. And, you know, I think I, that's why you see a lot of times a, a woman, especially women, cause I'm around the sport more, they'll win a grand slam. And and then a lot of times they don't back it up that as well, because all of a sudden they have this tr- tremendous amount of um, voices and opinions and yeah. the teams are bigger you know before it used to be like you had your coach and your parents let's say then you had a, maybe you had a trainer and a coach or some of your parent now now you see players with six seven people around them they all have an opinion they're all in the players ears um, you know all, all those things are big changes than than they were um, probably when we were playing or even when I first started coaching on the tour it's changed a lot
0: and how stressful is that? I guess if we take even then, obviously, you've got a fantastic coaching career, and you've, but you have coached a lot of girls, and on Maria yeah. for a long time, and I want to get into that
1: later. Sure. Please. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I know what you're getting at. Like the last few years, it's been uh, a little bit strange because I, well, I coached Maria for a long time, and then I coached this girl, Jessica Pagula, for a really long time. Uh, so with maria i was like seven years and with jesse i was like five or six years and then the last like three years i've basically been with like three or four different players um some of it's partly because of situation with vika i love working with azarenka but she had this custody with her child and she wasn't playing uh much and then joe i was with joe for the year but it just wasn't a great fit and then genie was a little bit strange but like you know compared to some other people that it's it's definitely it's i i don't want to say the word stressful because i feel like if when you, when you go into the job you're looking to do the best you can i like working with younger girls in a way i'm working with Tamea now who is 27 and i have known her she's the same age as jesse so i've known her for a long time uh, and we have a really good relationship but um i kind of like working with the younger girls because i feel like you you Developed that trust in a way, you know, with Maria, with Jesse, it's like you have because listen, I don't care how good a coach you are, how good a player, whatever. It takes time to to uh coach somebody. I mean, you know, that's why it's funny when yeah, these women they'll have a coach for like a week, and the women have wins the tournament. And they're like, oh, the coach, you know, that's why they won. It's like it doesn't work that way. I mean, they might have felt like a little extra motivation or or a change, but ultimately to to get the most out of somebody and get the most out of a coach you need time together you know and so um, I enjoy the process more than like the quick results and it takes a long time to get to know someone so if if I'm going to be with a player and it's going to end quick uh, at the end of the day it wasn't meant to be in my mind and it's always you can always work with somebody else
0: yeah no I completely agree and I think that's what I'd love, I'd love to hear, maybe the listeners would, but I'm being selfish, I'd love to hear, because I haven't worked with the top 100 players, we've had one girl that got into top 100, but not over a prolonged period like you have, yes. my coaching philosophy, and I actually call it, "Watch your code, which stands for, first and foremost, you connect, then, yes. you, then you give them order, order to their game, order to their, Absolutely. Order to their mind, you know, all, all of those things, then you develop.
1: Right, you know, right.
0: And then from there, you then evaluate and where you're yes. at and It's an ongoing process. But like you've rightly said, that connection takes time. So yes. how, how, does the, how does the process, not just in the girls, because it happens with the guys as well. Sure. How does that process, so let's say Vika. Yes. You to coach her as an example. How does that process start? And then how right. does that, that expectation gets set and, you know, yes work
1: well that's actually that's a great question actually really good question because every every situation is a little bit different but for in my case I like to ask a lot of questions I actually ask most of the questions (laughs) in a way than than the player because I I want to feel I feel like I need to know I need to know where the player what they're looking to do what how much information they want what what they're kind of goals are where they want where they see their game going so usually i spend a lot of time um asking questions and and observing the first let's say few days at least or or week you know um with vika it was an interesting situation a little bit because she was coming off of um having her baby so you know i had huge respect for her she played maria a bunch of times i i didn't really know her personally uh that well but uh I, I knew her from playing um, Maria a bunch of times. And so, you know, somebody like her, somebody like Joe Conta or even Jeannie, like I go in, I watch a lot of like video. Some of them I have, I've, I've seen play for years. So I, I have ideas in, in my head of where I think they can improve uh, in some cases where they need to kind of get back to certain things that they were doing well at, at a certain time. Um, but I usually, try to like little by little share that with them but i I try to find out if we're on the same page and and you know on certain things and and i like to get a lot of information from them and and even even if i'm coaching somebody for a long time i'm always getting their input uh, because um you know the way you give a message to one person is going to be totally different from another Uh, especially with the women the women are sense a little bit more sensitive in some ways and and some days are 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 different, and and you just, I think I think the messages aren't always that hard to give. It's just what's hard is figuring out how to give them the, the message the right way, kind of thing.
0: Very good, Mike. But in, in, in terms of in terms of that, um, the process of asking the questions of of connecting with how they how they play, yeah. that happened before contracts are signed.
1: yes yeah
0: or or is it a case of like let's say right does does an agent come to you and say look are you are you available you know right are you available and then is there then a conversation or yeah into those relationships and then finding that out afterwards
1: well it's it's funny it's funny so typically it's it's a kind of a weird thing because like with me i usually if i'm working with somebody Uh, people kind of know and I'm usually working with somebody that people know so typically when I stop stop working with them I usually just send out a tweet or you know or something just make it public that we've moved on per se and it's important to do that because um, the agents it's you, you hear some stories of some backstabbing and some stuff that goes on or you know a player might approach a coach that's with another player I mean you hear these stories all the time I mean, in my case, I, I, I would say majority of players and, and coach, uh, coaches, players and agents are pretty respectful. If they know I'm with another player, they won't talk to me about coaching them or anything like that. Um, so usually, like, for instance, while I was working with Jeannie, as soon as I sent I, I just said that we stopped working together. And, and then with within like a, you know, a few days, I, you know, agents start calling me or other players might send me a message. I mean, I started working with Tamea. She sent me a message on Instagram within like two minutes after I said I was done, you know, I wasn't working with Jeannie anymore. And we kind of like, um, and so like with her, with her, I just talked totally personal. Like just her and I, we, we, we sent messages back and forth. I talked with her all through like the French Open. She won the doubles there. And then we decided to do a trial on the grass and then eventually after talking for a long time she asked me you know how much i charge more or less. and i told her um that I'd, I'd go to the grass for a month and i told her you know weekly what i wanted to be paid and and we didn't even do bonuses at first because it was more like we're just going to try it out for three four weeks uh in genie's case it was uh I, I worked with her for a few weeks and then she did really good in a tournament like she went straight to luxembourg and qualified and made semifinals and it was she paid me my weekly salary and then that was the last term of the year so then during the off season we uh, we made like a whole contract so it's like with maria was similar like i started with her i was just kind of getting into coaching um all the years with maria kind of every couple years my salary and my bonus structure went up just because we were both doing better kind of thing so each um Uh, Pagula's situation was totally different. She was really young. Her parents are super wealthy. (laughs) They they own you know the Buffalo uh, Bills and the Sabers and and I was working with Jessie and I loved working with her and but she was really young. She was like seventeen. She was ranked three four hundred in the world. So I I straight out told her dad after like six months. I said, listen, I'm I'm not going to make many bonuses working with your daughter for a couple years. So if you want me to keep working with her, you kind of have to pay me as if I'm coaching a top 10 or top 20 player and you know for him that was peanuts what I was asking for so yeah so every situation's different but a lot of times I, I would say for the most part the player and the coach have to have a connection uh the agent might do an introduction but I don't think you're going to start talking about money and stuff until you actually feel that there's a chance you're going to work together at least in my case in in my situation
0: there's so I'm really excited having you on, and this is so many. Yeah, it's
1: good information. Yeah, you have great questions, Daniel, because these are it, these are part of the, you know, the the things that people just don't know. And every situation's different, you know. Some players, um, you know, some players might – you might have a younger player who you feel has a great upside, but they don't have that much money yet, and you're going to take a chance, so you don't expect – you're not going to come right out of the gates and say, oh, you got to pay me this, you know, huge money um you, some I know some coaches that have uh get take smaller salaries but they have much bigger bonuses because they feel the upside I'm actually a big believer in the bonuses because I feel ultimately ultimately as you go forward if if you're if the player's winning and and doing well then obviously you're doing a good job and then for the weeks if they're struggling um I think that makes it easier, also, for the player and coach to have a longer relationship because you're kind of into it as a team and together.
0: Accountability, isn't it? it yes, yeah. Joint accountability has to bring a yes a better connection as well.
1: Exactly. That's why I do see some of these coaches, especially the women, they jump around a lot, and and it makes. And I do know they charge a lot, and I think it, I think it, it. You just going into it is kind of wrong because the players, you know. Ex- paying all this money to this coach they expect like instant results and then some, and then obviously the coach if he's coming right out asking for tons of money um you know they, i just don't i think going into the job it, it's it's you're you're already kind of you know behind the eight ball a little bit um obviously you 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 have a price and from a coach and you have a but i think uh going at it as a team is the best way i
0: love it uh, there's uh, there's so many directions i want to go there's so many I want to just pick that brain of yours Mike yeah I I do want to bring you back to your playing career because yet you're a fantastic coach who's having an amazing coaching career I I do want to also say even listening to you I can see you and Timmy are working together for a long time you know it's a very organic way you've come together you know she's having a lot of success I feel as if she's won like They've won like the last
1: fifteen Grand Slams. It feels like I, it does feel. Yeah, I know the championships, and then yeah, yeah. Australian. I think yeah. I've seen them lose one doubles match actually, okay. possibly.
0: Which yeah, awesome. But I want to take you way back. So you, you as a tennis player, how, how in in a couple of minutes, if
1: yeah. You, how how did you get into tennis,
0: and what was your kind,
1: sure. of, kind of start? Yeah. Yeah, well, I I had, uh, my dad loved tennis, and uh, he actually built a tennis court in the house when I was a real little kid. So he loved, he was the one that loved tennis, and he introduced it to my mom kind of family. He was a director of photography, he was a cameraman, so he used to come home and play on the weekends, so forth. So he got, he pretty much got me started, Um, and then I played uh, all through the juniors, I had a really good junior career. I think things are a little bit different now back when 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 I was younger you didn't really think that much about being a pro or you know yeah. making a money doing it or living so i I was just training and practicing and trying to win the the next local tournament more or less uh, I think when I was fifteen sixteen, I started to think like this is something I could possibly do my My main goal was to go to college um I, I lived right near UCLA, so I kind of had a dream of going to UCLA. I always used to watch their matches and stuff, and, and that's actually where I was going to go. I got accepted to that school, and then my last year, 18s, I, I got to the finals of junior Wimbledon and I won Kalamazoo, which was our big nationals. And then I went around the US Open, and so we just I decided to turn pro. Um, and then my pro career was um, uh, kind of up and down, I had some bad injuries. Um, as soon as I turned pro I fell and dislocated my shoulder my left shoulder so I was out for like a year um came back and then took a couple years to get into the top hundred and then I was there for I don't know three or four years and then I my then I hurt my left wrist really bad um had like a year and a half of uh, out with surgery with that so you know I played a long time but I I hovered between 60 and 200 150 for a really long time and I feel like also, in my mid-20s, tennis was changing a lot. That's what I said earlier. It was like you had guys like yeah, – I remember getting to the finals of a challenger when I was, like, 26 years old, and I played, like, Marty Fish first round, James Blake second round, Robbie Ginepri, quarterfinals, finals, <laughs> semifinals all these guys that were coming up, um, right – uh, roddick i played roddick and a couple of challengers when he was 17 18 so yeah it was it was when i came back from my wrist surgery it, it was becoming a really tough time in tennis and a lot of the guys i was playing I, mean, I got back to like 100 or something but it really um when i look back at it i mean it was it i probably could have done things a, a little bit different and a little bit better in some ways but it opened up so many doors for me and and it gave me so many um i got to being unbelievable people and traveled amazing places and and then that kind of led into my coaching career.
0: Very well put. 1991, you win. No, you make final of Junior women Lose to a certain it was Enquist. Yes, In the final. If you could go back to to then, knowing what you know now, right? What would you what, what would you do, what advice? Would you give?
1: Well, that was an amazing tournament. Um, you know, what, I try to tell this to my players a little bit. Um, I used to always hear, you probably heard it too, when you were a kid, everybody, you know, you'd have a tough loss. or You lose somewhere, they'd say, oh, you know, people, you know, you got to uh, push, you know, people aren't, you're gonna, not going to remember this, in, you know, in ten, 10 years or whatever. And it's kind of funny because when you do look back at your career as a player, it's all of us it's summed up into a couple things and it's usually good things (laughs) you know you look back and you say oh I had wins over this this and this or I did well on this this and this so you know you're looking at a whole career and you're summing it up into like a few results so I try to tell the players uh, that I work with like um, you know to try to feel a little less pressure I mean obviously it's easier said than done but like at the time if you're a twelve year old you're playing a twelve and under tournament, it's like the biggest thing in the world at the time. but then you realize as time goes on it's it's really like like tennis goes forward, life goes forward, so you know you have to try to enjoy battling, enjoy playing the matches i think I think when I look back um like that Wimbledon tournament, which was so amazing is I probably left feeling disappointed. I lost in the finals, but when I look back at it now, it was my first time playing on grass. I played I played at Wimbledon. I played Greg Ruzetsky in the semifinals on court one, uh, the old court one, and I lost on the old court one, but I played like, uh, I mean, I played three or four, Kareem Malami, Kenneth Carlson, Medvedev. I played all these great players just to get to the finals. Yeah. And the thing is, too, that I remember most about that trip was I was sharing a house with, like, six guys, like my buddies, like David Witt and, and uh, it is Brian Dunn. And, like, like when I look back, like, that whole month was just to Jonathan Leach. And, like, it was a great month of just uh, – we used to play over – we were playing at David Lloyd's. We used to play these um, – because it rained a lot that year. So we were playing at David Lloyd's, and we'd play, like, games for, like, a slush puppy. Remember, it, like, it was one pound was a slush puppy. And we used to play, like, these – Baseline games and so the thing is is like I look back and I actually remember those things more than the result. Kind of same with Kalamazoo. Like I won Kalamazoo. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. I went through this the other day with somebody. He was going through all the people I played, and I I remembered the finals and semis. But I actually remember certain things about that trip that didn't really have anything to do with actual playing. So I think it's really important for the players to take in the experiences you know, look, take in the experiences, because ultimately, as we get older, that's all it is, it's memories. And and those memories are the most important things incredible so i tell my I would tell my young self that basically it's an incredible
0: thirty second clip like in yeah. terms of when I advertise this podcast you 've just given me the perfect thirty second clip yeah it 's
1: easier podcast. said than done, but it, it really is true because I remember like yesterday like a couple of players telling me when I was a kid like oh don 't take it so hard you won 't even remember this in like a few months and blah blah, blah. and it 's really true i mean it, it, at the end of the day it's it's it 's all about experiences and and enjoying battling and competing and and that's the best part of it. That's actually what I miss the most about not playing anymore.
0: Yeah. Unbelievable. Do you think do you think that the the modern world of tennis, which is and you touched on it earlier, it's a big camaraderie of of, 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 of just lots of people around a player, you know, yes. certainly if you're any good. And and right. I see it a lot in the academy world as well. You see. Sure parents that are protecting, especially daughters, I think, more, yeah,
1: than, sure.
0: more than sons. Do you think we're taking away from that bike down that road?
1: A little bit. I You know, a little bit. I, I think uh, in some ways, I think ultimately it hurts the player's development in some cases. I mean, I can understand. I think every player, every great player uh, always had somebody, you know, one person typically who kind of watched over them or, you know, especially when you're really young. I mean, you know, when you're 12, 11, it's not like you're going to force yourself to go out there and practice your serve or, you know, do. So usually you've, it's a, usually a parent or like an Uncle Tony or, or somebody who kind of guides them, um, especially when they're really young. But then when you become, I, I can't say exact age, but when you become 15, 16, you, you, number one, the player needs to have passion and the player needs to want it themselves. Um, ultimately a player can become good by a parent or somebody kind of wanting it for them, but there, I really, at some point it's going to catch up to them. I mean, I see it. I I see it all the time. Um, you know, at some point it's going to catch up to them. I think the experiences that we learn as players, uh, when you're 15, 16, whatever, say even early 20 and early, late teens, like you have to learn a lot of stuff yourself. You know, you have to learn, I mean, we can't make somebody tough at 5 all on the fifth set or 5 all on the third set. We can't, you know, we can't make somebody, um, you know, uh, go for their shots on break point, at, you know, in a huge match. As coaches, you, you can't, you, you could try to lead them in, over time and say, this is what you need to do. But I feel like the player needs to really find themselves. And it's really hard when you have people around constantly telling you how you should be, what you need to do, comparing you to other people. Comparing The comparisons are the worst, I find, especially with the girls. That's why in some cases it's hard with girls because they're not only comparing the results, but they, a lot of times they're comparing what they look like you know, what uh, What this person's wearing, what that person, that, that girl's doing this, this girl's doing that, the rankings. Now you have so many rankings. I mean, on the computer, you can look up anything. You know, when we played, I, I remember in the juniors, the rankings came out once of every six months or something. So all of those things, I think, make kind of take away a little bit from the actual game. Like you're out there, you're trying to play you're you're playing a game you know all the training all the coaching all that you're doing is to try to give you tools to try to help you uh develop your game so you can go out there and compete and and you got to enjoy competing if you don't enjoy competing or you're scared to play or you're scared what somebody's gonna say or, um what your if your parents are gonna be mad all that stuff holds players back and and it's a huge part of of the game i'm sure it's like that in other sports too but in tennis for sure it's a huge part of uh, which holds a lot of kids back, I think.
0: Absolutely. Very good. I, I want to ask one more question on your playing career before I want to jump back into the into the coaching. Who was your toughest opponent and why?
1: Well, it, it, that's, a, that's a good one. I played a lot of great players. I mean, um, if, if I actually really thought of somebody who was really tough for me, it would probably be somebody a lot of people wouldn't even know. I mean, I, Agassi was tough for me because I feel like I played kind of like him. Uh, He just did, he did everything better. So he, you know, when I was playing Agassi, it was like, if I won a game, it could be 2-1 in the first set I was exhausted because he'd just run you. He'd want to like torture you. I like playing Sampras because i Figured I'd probably lose, but I knew I could, like, make it look good or I could, you know, (laughs) hold serve Exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, The toughest guy for me, I lost to him about four or five times, was Marcelo Rios. He was a nightmare. I mean, to me, he was, like, better than Agassi. He just uh, was left-handed. He was, like, had a bigger serve. And I I played him when he was really doing well. I played him at the French one year, and he made, like, a fool out of me. I mean, he was so talented. Yeah. Um, but then there were a lot of guys like Michael Russell and Cecil Mamet and these guys who I played a lot, like in challengers and yeah. those guys were tough for me. Cause they, they, got every ball. Michael Russell was tough to play. I mean, he just made you work so hard and, yeah. um, you know, so, and I played those guys a bunch like in challengers and stuff, but the best player I say I would played was Rios just because of his, his style of game. And obviously, I think he, he got to number one, which is pretty damn good. But I think he – not winning a Grand Slam was because of more, like, mental than yeah. his off-court stuff. But from pure talent, like, that guy was an un- unbelievable player. Unbelievable.
0: Well, I I was out um, – uh, in Spain, we're allowed out a little bit now. And I, I had my kind of – if you want to call it a night out. It was on the beach. and uh, you're in,
1: Yeah.
0: You can't really move from your table. But I got talking to a guy from Chile on Saturday night. My Spanish after ten years, unfortunately, is not great, but (laughs) it seemed to flow a little bit. And we got talking about Marcelo Rios with you know this guy and I was asking about him. And basically, if I was getting the conversation right, he basically told me he's like Diego Maradona. You know, that he's he? Yeah. That he's just like living this massive party life in Chile now and he's just you know, he's that amazing, one, it, one yeah. of a kind, but I think we'll be, we'll be talking about him for years. He'll be, yeah, he'll go down in the history of the sport, has probably been the best male player to never win a grand slam. I think,
1: yeah, I think so. I actually, and I played doubles with them a few times too, yeah, yeah. so yeah, that, that that could go on for a long time, telling yeah. Marcelo's stories, but yeah. he. The, for the talent that guy had for the game, I mean, he worked hard too when he was young. There's no, yeah. it's like Curios kind of people think, oh, Curios just goes through the motions, this and that. I mean, I mean, I know he worked hard when he was young. I mean, they get they're so talent they could get away with stuff now. But you know, Marcelo, I know he worked really hard when he was younger. But uh the, the, for pure talent, and he could just make you look silly on the court.
0: We'll do a Rios Curios fifteen twenty minute or thirty. Yeah. So
1: yes that, yeah
0: if, if anyone wants to hear that let us know
1: <laughs> but right
0: but back into your coaching the first i remember actually because we'd it was 2000 i should know but 2001 ish and i we saw each other and played doubles yeah together.
1: 2002 yeah. Maybe, actually,
0: 2000. yeah that sounds about right yeah. and and then and then I, I back at birmingham which was my my club in birmingham and, and sure I um, remember walking in I was like oh Joycey you know what you're doing. I know yeah and you were you were working with Maria you know right so how how did that come about and you know and how did that all start off and then let's talk about that journey a little
1: bit. yeah yeah that was that was pretty simple story because I, I basically I met Maria when she was really young she was like nine or ten and, and I, my coach growing up was Robert Lansdorf in, oh, in okay. California so he coached me my it when i was like eight years old basically and so i would always up until i was 18 19 i'd take you know go to see him once a week for an hour he was more like a stroke guru type guy you know and so then when i was on the tour uh when i was home for a couple of weeks here and there i'd go take a lesson with him that's what everybody would do kind of you know just kind of he would you know feed you tons of balls like kind of check out your strokes and yeah. you know and it was great to see robert he was like your like mentor coach from a young age you know so this one day I went to go work with him and he actually told me he's like oh I got he's like when when we're done he's like I got this young girl coming over I think she's gonna be like a superstar blah 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 she's so like cute and she's like worked so hard blah 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 can you hit with her for a few minutes so I said sure so it was Maria she was like nine nine or ten years old so I kind of uh over the next few years I just kind of would see her at times more right. or less and so then, uh, when she was like around 14, 15 was right about the time, like towards the end of my career, it would have been around 2003, I mean, 2001, 2002, my mom got really sick, uh, with cancer. so I was on the tour, but I was, uh, I'd spent a lot of time at home. So I, I was just trying to like, uh, make some money. So I was given some lessons. I was hitting with some, some pros. And so I was hitting a lot with Maria, like, uh, they used to pay me a, yeah, basically what they used to Robert or her dad used to just tell me to just kind of kick her butt, like play her a couple of sets. And, you know, I was still playing good. So I could beat her one and one, one you know, whatever, you know, one and oh and you know, do some hitting with her, whatever. So I did that for a couple of years. And then, um, once I got off the tour full time and then she actually, she had a coach when she won Wimbledon, she was working with part-time with Robert. She was working, part-time at Volataries, and then she had a coach, uh, Mauricio Haddad, along with her dad, uh, who was actually with her when she won Wimbledon, mm-hmm. and then um, she would tell me Mauricio helped her tremendously, he was a really good player, he was from Colombia, he helped her a lot, but I think after she won Wimbledon, it was all of a sudden, it was it happened so fast, she actually won Birmingham first, and then she won Wimbledon, and um, like she says, in a matter of like two months, she, she was Went into the French Open, ranked like 80. She got to the quarterfinals, which was amazing for her. Then she won Birmingham. Then she won Wimbledon. So all of a sudden, within like a month, I think everybody kind of was trying to like take credit as being her coach. And I think, I, I think everything just got out of control. Like Robert wanted to jump up. Then Volatieri was – and then it was like Mauricio kind of got lost in the shuffle – Uh, her dad all of a sudden you know which of course her dad was tremendous impact on her on her her life her career but then all of a sudden he was her coach it was like so I kind of stepped in about two three months later I I, it kind of made sense she came back out to LA for like a month I I hit with her every day I'd always kind of help her you know give her you know how it is when you're you got a younger player I'd always give her advice and help her with stuff and we decided to me start traveling with her some and, and then, uh, kind of the rest was history. You know, the first couple of years, her dad obviously went, she was so young, her dad traveled with us quite a bit. I got along with her dad really well. Yeah. Um, you know, he was really smart about uh, he knew her, obviously knew her better than any, every, anybody. Uh, at this point, he knew tennis well, but he knew that she was also a teenage girl who want to listen to him all the time so he was smart about like helping me kind of help her and I got to know her really well um obviously spending all the time and so I think that worked into a a really successful seven years or so
0: unbelievable and yeah was it working at that intensity with such a superstar you know yeah
1: yeah you know it, it was kind of like I mean she was so young and obviously she was um became so famous when i look back at it now at the time it just seemed kind of normal because i was also kind of a new coach in a way too so for me it was like i, I the stuff that she was accomplishing and the stuff that she was doing was just seemed kind of normal <laughs> it kind of it's, it's hard to explain but like like you would like um uh, yeah i think i was with her for like 28 tournaments she won or something but like to me um you know you show up at the tournament you're just trying to win matches she was so competitive every match uh you know we took very serious no matter who she played um you know she'd win a tournament and you're like happy for a few hours and you might celebrate for dinner and then you wake up the next day and you get back to work she also was young enough to where like she was still improving a lot like she actually uh between 17 let's say and by the time she won, let's say, US Open 19, and then she won Australian Open at 21, I feel like it, she was improved a lot those years. Yeah. You know, tennis also got, t- you know, it was tough then, too. I mean, yeah. you had Henin and Kleisters and the Williams sisters. And, I mean, yeah. it was really a tough time. So, we, I just kept feeling like we were trying to make her better. And she always had also that mentality she wanted to get better. Um, you know then we had a couple of tough years at the end more because of her injuries and and coming back from shoulder surgery I mean I spent the whole year with her you know doing rehab and all of this and coming back from an in- injury um, obviously and then and then her changing you know when I first met her she's you know like a little girl and then seeing her all of a sudden 23 20, you know 24 and have um, boyfriends and, and everything, and try to live a normal life. And um, the thing that that I look back that's amazing was how recognizable she was, and how like away from tennis, like you know, just being in airports and and people that knew her that didn't even really follow tennis because she's so tall and and she stands out. Like the amount of people we ran into that um, just knew her because she's like a superstar. That. That, that, to me, was more weird than the actual yeah. tennis aspect. Kind.
0: But also how, how humble she seemed. And I, and I know that, you know, is, it was, is a special place to her because I think it was her first WTA event just before Wimbledon. But I also know, I mean, Edgbaston's a, a, a special club to me, but especially my wife's Yes, and, and she is adored at that club. I mean, she is yeah. completely adored. Yeah, but I remember one year, and you were there. I'm sure you you were. And she'd—I think she'd lost in the finals.
1: Yeah, the Yankovic. We hung out with all the ball kids. Yeah,
0: kids, and 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 the impact that that had. And I mean, I won't share a couple of the stories that she shared on that day, but the great
1: stories. But we sat behind the court. I remember. Yeah,
0: amazing, and it was so lovely to see because she, as you say she's a superstar not a tennis superstar she's a world she's a superstar yeah right and to and to get to see that side and I saw a little bit of that side but certainly my wife Vicky saw a lot more of that side and I know the kids that I was coaching and and different yeah. you know the impact that she had and to right. see the impact on, that someone like that could have on on so many people was was, was fantastic. What, yeah. In terms of how hard, I guess, to give the listeners and especially young tennis players some insight, how hard did she work? Because she seemed like she worked very hard. And what would a typical day look
1: like? Yeah, she. Uh, I mean, she worked really hard. I, I actually, I wouldn't say she was one, one of the hardest workers I've worked with. Um, I think, I think she worked really hard um, consistently from a young age. I, I think her her will to win and her heart was incredible um you know there's it it's she didn't actually like practicing that much (laughs) she'd be the first one to say she didn't like going to the gym that much didn't like practicing that much but when she was on the practice court she was given 110 and when she was competing she was always given 110 and and the thing is 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 that's what made it so special to work with her because I always knew to, to know that somebody's given it, like, I don't think she ever hit a tennis ball without like a purpose in her life. And, you know, and that's a lot of times you see kids, you know, they go through the motion or they're asking her what time it is. They want to get off the court, you know, so she, she wouldn't like, um, it would be a myth to say that she was like chomping at the bit to get out there and practice, you know, but when she did, and she knew she had to, you know, she knew she had to put in the work. She had to, she, she was always willing to listen. She might have questions about certain things, uh, always had questions actually, but she would, if you explained why you're doing something, she would do it. And, um, just incredible amount of competitiveness, you know, which, which, um, she reminded me kind of like a guy in that sense because Mm -hmm. you know she if even if there was something she was bad at like with that wasn't tennis if you played her in something and she was bad at and she lost she'd drive you nuts to keep playing it like horse or something you know like because she just was so competitive Mm -hmm. um so we had a lot of fun with that because and, and then as a coach too I used to I felt that I got more out of her in practice when I would you know, we do different drills and stuff, but I'd make it into games or I'd keep score, or, you know, or some, some some way to kind of challenge her, which I still do a lot with my players now, because I feel like a lot of them, if you put a little, you know, keep track or keep score or something, a lot of times they put more into it. And I learned that a lot from Maria, too.
0: No, oh, no, Absolutely. How much in a more general sense now? So I'm conscious of your time. Well, a couple more questions if I can in a general sense of working with the women and the incredible players that you do work with, how much do you scout opponents and how much do you use data?
1: Um, it's a, another great question. I, I scout, I'll take scouting over data any day. Okay. And I'll tell you why I, some of the data is important. There's no doubt, but I feel like a lot of the data is important more on your own player yes. because um yeah, I'll give you an example. I mean, first of all, there's, I, even if I'm watching a, uh, if, if I'm coaching Tamea, she's going to play uh, Coco golf or something, yeah. you know, I, it, I, I would, it, I could find videos of Coco, let's say, you know, or nowadays they have everything. So you can find videos, but there's still, to me, there's no substitute to actually watching them in person. Obviously yeah. you can't do that all the time, but you know, watching a person, you could see the speed of the ball, you get a feel for the spin, the different stuff. Um, when it comes to the data, I know a lot of coaches are really big into the data, but I feel like the data for for the player you're coaching is really important because you might see that they're doing certain patterns or different things that are too predictable. But I find that a lot of times some of the data is too much because you're they're always playing against different players. You're taking lots of things as a whole. Um, for me, I, I feel like the game is constantly – I mean, my big let's put it this way my big question for the people that are huge in the data is if like if people keep track of John Isner's serve okay like how's he still winning matches because technically if the data is that good you should be able to know where he's going to serve on break point every time people still can't break him so you know so you know there's definitely a place and time for it i think you can see things that sometimes as a player that maybe you are doing better that all of a sudden you don't realize you're not doing as well. You might be hitting you know, too many balls uh, cross-court or first, you know, whatever. But I think it can get a little bit overboard too because at the end of the day, when you're out there playing, you have to also play with instinct. You have to uh, – a good player is going to be able to change their game up a little bit. They're going to make uh, adjustments. And so uh, the scouting's I, I think, really important.
0: Great. Love it. And and what are the you you've mentioned a couple of times at the start of the podcast how you feel a lot of the game is the same what what are the constant trends do you think that are in the game but then also what do you think maybe the new trends are, or are right
1: like well the definitely new trends are the uh, physical aspect I I feel the physical aspect uh, the players uh, the men the men have been doing this for a while but the men are incredibly fit and strong and um, you know can last forever but now you see the women are also getting there they're incredibly strong and and, and fit and um, they move really incredible I think some of the newer technology with the rackets and string are making it maybe so it's a little you don't need to have as much uh, talent let's say with feel you know you look at a guy like Dan Evans or something like to me he's like I'm not, not just saying it because he's a friend of ours, but, like, he's an unbelievable tennis player. Like, to me, he's so much better than even a guy like um, – I mean, I don't want to throw somebody under the bus, but, like, John Isner or something. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he just does everything great. Um, but, you know, back years ago, you had to have that feel. You had to be, – to be competitive, you had to be able to do everything. A guy like Neville Godwin or something, you know, was – like you know, and so now, because of the technology and stuff, a guy like Millman or something, he's just incredibly, can run all day, incredibly strong. You won't look at his strokes and say, this guy's like a super talented player, but he's unbelievably fit. So I feel like the women's game starting to get a little bit like that, too, um, where you have like the similarities. And that's why also I like coaching women, because you still have like the patterns, you still have um they can't really overpower as much as the men can so you still have a lot of the mental side is still the same the how you play big points how you make adjustments during the match how you um your court positioning all of that stuff is similar so that's in that sense the game's pretty much the same um, but I think the physiology, physio- is that even a word, <laughs> is, is, a lot, is, a, is a lot different now. Or stronger, probably. Like
0: Sakari, more like a Sakari, I guess.
1: Would. Oh, yeah, yeah, Sakari, exactly. You look at Sakari, I mean, she's built, I mean, yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, even like I remember 15 years ago, Maria would play a couple girls first few rounds and you'd be like, this girl doesn't even look like she's in shape, you know. And, I mean, you don't see that that often now. Not not in the top, you know, 150 or something.
0: You think we'll see in the women's game people coming to the net more? Uh,
1: I think we will. I think we will. But I think it's also part of the reason people don't as much is because, again, it's like the, they've slowed the courts down a lot. I mean, Wimbledon is like slow now. I mean, like I go and hit on those courts. It's almost slower than French open between the heavy balls and the, and this court, you know, so it's just tougher to get in. So I think you're going to see more like people sneaking in or like, I worked a lot with the girls on that. I like working, you know, when they get somebody in trouble, taking balls out of the air, swing ball. I think you're going to see more of that than just, I think some and volley could still work well, especially with the, you know, especially the people standing so far back, but i I think people want to do it. I just think because of the rackets and strings and the courts it's it, it's made it like really tough. but I think we'll see some some of it.
0: Michael, I could speak honestly to you for hours. it's been an amazing chat.
1: I appreciate it. We'll have to do a part two one time.
0: absolutely It've we'll been a pleasure, but I have to do the quick fire. So sure. Quick fire. um serve our return. Return. Injury timeout or not?
1: Should it be allowed? It's okay. It, sh- it's, it should be allowed.
0: Five-minute warm-up before the match or not?
1: I think they just changed it to four minutes <clears throat> this they? year. But everybody forgot because of the pandemic. But this year they changed it to four.
0: Right, okay. So four
1: minutes. <laughs> four minute <warm laughs> so four, four – Tamea T- 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 tells me she likes the four minutes.
0: Right, okay. <laughs> Grunting or not?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I, I, uh, a little bit. Medium. Medium.
0: Doubles or singles?
1: Uh, singles.
0: And one rule change you would make in tennis?
1: One rule change. Uh, I would like to see uh, tiebreakers and all, all Grand Slams. This set, always finish with a tiebreaker. None of this playing to 30-28 or something.
0: Brilliant. Joyce, yeah. you've been amazing. It's, honestly, that's, that is gonna, people are going to love that. I love it. I look forward to listen to it back. You go and pick your daughter up. And yeah, gonna... I, I'm on my way. I am on my way. Top man, thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. That was fun. That yeah, was fun. Take care, man. We'll let's stay in touch
1: absolutely we will
0: thanks a lot Joyce see you later massive thank you to, to Mike Joyce for that um, as I said at the start of the podcast I'm sure that's a one that a lot of people are going to really enjoy you know proper proper tennis insights um, I could feel myself just taking his energy and wanting to talk for, for much longer and I know we discussed part two but you know if that is something that you guys would like to hear please let us know because I know Michael's very happy to to jump back on and we want to pick his brain as much as we can um, especially when he's, he's given such open and honest answers you know there really wasn't anything held back there he, he really did share the ins and outs of how it works and, and how his personal journey's been So yeah, please, please let us know how you're finding the podcasts, Um, any, as always, any requests, you know, we are, you know, fighting hard to make sure we're still bringing a couple to you every week, we do have a long list, we've got some amazing people we want to keep bringing on, Um, however, we are also very open to, to your thoughts, you know, some people have been reaching out and putting us in touch with some, some fantastic guests and that's what we're here for. We're here, to, we're here to bring you the guests that you want to listen to. So, so please do get in touch with suggestions or, or even putting us in touch with guests that you think would, would work really well on the show. Um, thank you for the support, as always. The, the liking, the sharing. You know, let's keep getting, let's keep getting this thing moving and, and getting it into the right hands. But a big thank you from myself and John. I'm Dan Keenan, my co-host John McGann. We are control the controllables.